everyone, and welcome to The Unscientific Method. Today we're talking with Danielle Grant about the very important topic of climate change, how we monitor past climates to make predictions about our future world. Danielle is currently completing her PhD in Bergen, Norway at the Norris Norwegian Research Centre and the Bjerknes Centre for Climate Research. Welcome, Danielle. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. So, Danielle, you're doing paleo-oceanography research. What does this mean? Yeah, so um, paleo-oceanography is a big word, <laughs> but it's the study of oceans as they were in the past. So generally, the aim in paleo-oceanography is you're, we're trying to reconstruct the physical or chemical or biological components or characteristics of past oceans. And this can be on whatever timescales. There's different timescales that you can be interested in. But for me, I'm really interested in the period of 130,000 years ago when the world was slightly warmer than it is today. And and how do you use that information? So paleo-oceanography has two branches, I guess you could say. There's the branch that I mostly work in, which is where you use these kind of, you can say, observational data. You go out to the ocean, you get a sediment core, and you use the fossils or chemical traces in that sediment core to build your reconstruction. But you can also do this mod on more computer aspects, modeling what has happened in the past ocean. So for me, for example, I'm really interested in this time period of 130,000 years ago because it represents a world that we know was slightly warmer than what it is today. But we don't really know much about certain aspects in, say, the Arctic during that time period. The specific question is what the sea ice was doing. Was it there? Did it come and go? Those kinds of questions. So we use paleoceanography to understand not only what was happening in the past, but if we understand, okay, when things were slightly warmer, the sea ice behaved this way or this current changed in this way, it can also maybe help us build better predictions for when we want to predict what will happen in the future. We know that we are going towards a warmer world and it's better that we can maybe narrow down those climate models for understanding, okay, what can we expect? Where we'll see levels rise? When should we be really concerned about our sea ice uh, mm-hmm. being disappeared? Those kinds of things. You mentioned that paleoceanography can look at a number of different aspects. So chemical, biological, which aspect do you look at? So I'm in a kind of an emerging uh, area for paleoceanography, um, which has a kind of some bouncing titles, but I like to say molecular paleoceanography. So I'm actually a molecular biologist um, in my background, and the biology of things is what I really care about. So I'm using uh, an interdisciplinary approach for paleoceanography, where I am actually really focused on DNA as a potential one of these observational traits in a sediment record that I can build um, paleo records on. So I use a kind of a synthesis of molecular biology tools for paleoceanography questions. What does that look like? Do you have a workflow that you kind of work through? So how do you get this information? How do you get these molecular targets first? Yeah, so it's a, it's a fun workflow, but a bit of a journey. <laughs> so for me, I mentioned before that my main kind of sample material are these, they're called sediment cores or marine sediment cores specifically. So Uh, For me, I get to go out on these uh, very fun, uh, very cool research vessels, um, icebreakers for me. There's a Norwegian vessel called the Kronprins Håkon. We go out to the Arctic Ocean. We have some predefined coordinates of of an interesting spot of sediment that would be good for studying our time period of interest. And we actually go out with a a big winch and a rig and steel pipes uh, lined with plastic pipes. 
and then we it has a giant weight on it and you go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean floor the weight pushes the pipe into the sediment and then you actually pull up a little pore of however many meters for me i'm looking at one that's uh, 19 meters in length uh you wow pull that's up amazing preserved yeah it's it's crazy it's very cool and from there you can do a bunch of different paleoceanography things and we do the 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 investment to get the these cores is so high that you try to get as much information from the core as you can so it's not just one person usually working on these things i'm part of a team and we work on a bunch of different aspects but for me then i actually go take these cores we have a very special ancient dna is very prone to contamination and like i said i'm looking at hundreds of thousands of years which is very ancient material so we have a very specialized lab where um, we actually wear like the full hazmat suits you have visors wow. it's bleached all the time uh, where we have uv lights in the ceilings for decontamination we take contamination risk super seriously and that's where we do all our sampling and kind of all of our workflow so is this something that's on the ship or is this is this post ship so you collect you collect the cores and then you bring them back to real land i guess yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you can sample things on the ship. And, you know, if uh, I think the more traditional paleoceanography people, they much prefer to do it on the ship because you're, then you're just working all the time, which is fun. But uh, and you get a lot of samples at the end. But for us, yeah, this is back on land. We ship our samples uh, frozen or uh, they're at four degrees. And then when they get here, they get frozen. And yeah, we have a very contained pristine lab it's been interesting to work there during corona because i think there's no safer place it's so clean absolutely uh, yeah yeah and it's good and so you do the do you do the whole decontamination process where you have to kind of go into a separate room and like put all these gloves on and tape them up and yeah wow yeah there's different zones where you're allowed to work and then if you've been to another zone you can't go to that specific room and it's very uh it's been fun. It's been a bit of a learning curve, but it's definitely, uh, <laughs> it's, I, I really like it. I like how controlled it is. I think a lot of people who work with DNA, especially in molecular things like this, this level of control and cleanliness is just, oh, <laughs> it's really nice. Does it slow it down at all? Do you find, is it, does it take more time because of that? Or is it, um, do you find that it's, it's kind of almost negligible because once you're in there you can do your work at a normal pace for me i really don't think it slows me down i think there's maybe people who would see this differently but i think once you just have it kind of on lock you have your pipe like you you have you know what you have to do you have to get dressed up and once you get into the flow of it i think it goes by pretty quickly and then you have such confidence in the samples that you've taken so to get the samples we we it's not so clean. So we control for so much of the cleanliness that I feel just better about it in general. Cause you have to like saw open the, the cores and we sample with like little syringes and it's so uh, controlled that I think you make up for it in a way. Cause if you just, um, if you just sample on the ship, you're not really sure about your contamination. So I think you have to be way more invested in the not that we're not invested in the data analysis, but having that level of confidence from the cleanliness, I think puts everyone a bit more at ease. So maybe you lose a little bit of time, but I think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're looking at something like ancient DNA, which is, I assume, very, I don't know if it's unstable or hard to see, I guess. 
So ancient DNA is uh, kind of this interesting bubble right now, especially for looking at it for it in marine sediments. So it's a sequencing technology and these molecular um, tools have really gained uh, like competency in the last few years where now it's like, okay, can we test the boundary here? Can we test the boundary here? And for marine sediment cores, it, it makes a lot of sense that it, uh, it works for quite some time, as long as the, the, the conditions in the core is stable. I mean, the conditions of these like 19 meters below the, the surface, they're pretty, you know, they're just this gray mud. It's all the same temperature for the most part. It's pretty undisturbed. So it, for sure, ancient DNA, the older you go, the more fragmentation, there's chemical changes. But, you know, if it's there, I think it's, there and it's pretty stable. It's not so much done so far on like these really old marine sediments, but uh, I'm enthusiastic. That's amazing. What do you do once you get the, the DNA? Yeah, so once you've done the extraction of the DNA, you have uh, more lab work, you switch labs, you get out of your ancient wow. DNA lab, um, and you actually use uh, a lot of protocols with this uh, PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. And I think most people have uh, been introduced this term because of PCR tests for COVID now, mm -hmm. which is, makes my life a bit easier. But um, the ancient DNA, there's so few of it in the sample. So one thing that we use is PCR, which is, acts like a photocopier for a target region of DNA. And the main toolkit that I use to look at the composition of DNA in the sediments that I'm interested in is something called metabarcoding or DNA metabarcoding. So barcoding itself is, is just a method where you get a sequence. So you get your, your readout of DNA, which is these um, building blocks of life with this A, T, G, C sequence. And for each organism, for example, there's a barcode that corresponds. Um, how do I say this properly? So barcoding is a method of species identification. It looks at this short sequence of DNA that can define between different species. So you can cut this off in many different areas, but I have a cereal box analogy. Yeah. So if you're at a grocery store and you have an aisle and you walk down the aisle and there's a bunch of cereal boxes, say you, for some reason, you can't turn the boxes over, but you can just see the barcodes. So you can scan the barcodes and you figure out, okay, this one's Cheerios, this one's Lucky Charms, this one is whatever. So that's the same thing with barcoding organisms. So in, in the, the, the first instances of using this is you have six beetles and you use genetic tools that gives you a sequence at the end that you can scan and say, oh, this beetle is a diticidate diving beetle. This one is a ladybug. If you weren't able to actually see what they looked like, you could do it this way. And then, so what I'm doing is kind of a step up from that. So instead of scanning each individual box, I have a molecular or a workflow that looks at identifying the species composition in the sample. So I just go to the grocery style aisle. I have a huge scanner gun that scans all of the barcodes on all the cereal boxes. And it tells me, this is all the cereals you have in your sample. So these are all the like the species you have in your sample. So we do this throughout an entire time section in the core. So I get a kind of a breakdown overview shot of all the biodiversity that I find in the different uh, sediment samples. And the lower you go in the core, the older and older you go. So you can kind of get this overview of what's changing and the different biodiversity. I'm, you can do this for many different targets. I'm casting a pretty broad net. I'm interested in these small little organisms. Hopefully some of them live in the sea ice, but maybe some are more associated with freshwater, this type of stuff, but mostly like little algae or like little tiny ciliates, those type of things.
Okay, so so the idea is that essentially you will capture these DNA sequences and scan them all, and they'll tell you what's there in that sample. They'll tell you what kind of organisms are there. Are they really different organisms? Do you find that it's it's very different than what we see today? No, it's pretty similar. So the, the caveat with using this is we have to compare with modern samples, but I do see a lot of similar things, which is not so crazy. The oceans have a lot of stuff that's uh, survived for many hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. So I'm not totally surprised by that, but there's definitely shifts. There's things that happen in certain, like a, in a glacial time period where there was way more ice. And then all of a sudden you go a little bit more up in the core where we're into this warm period called the last interglacial and the the composition in the samples you find completely swap, which is pretty interesting. And once you get all this information out, I assume that within these samples, there's, I mean, there's a ton of different organisms that you can find. How do you, how do you manage to sort through all of that? So after you get out of the lab, which is a substantial amount of my day, to be honest, or amount of my time as a PhD student, then you get into this realm of data analysis. It has a, the term of bioinformatics, which I think is a nice term because it emphasized this informatics structure of like computer skills needed, which uh, I love and hate. <laughs> but uh, my approach <laughs> in metabarcoding, it's tethered to, uh, it, it means that I get millions and millions of data points, which you have to sift through. And there's different ways. You do a lot of filtering and a lot of data cleaning so that the idea is that through this filtering, what you're looking at is true, true signals. And then just looking at the different diversity, kind of seeing, oh, is there anything that pops out at us? Uh, let's follow that line of thinking. So it's a lot of exploring um, to see what's there. When is it changing? What could it tell us something? And then once you get a bit more firm and you have a bit better picture of the story, we really rely on some of these, just these ecology statistics and looking at composition changes in the community. And then tying in some of the other paleo-oceanography stuff too of, okay, what was the surface ocean temperature at this time? Does that have an impact? So it kind of branches into the statistics and bioinformatics side. Very cool. Do you anticipate being able to make those future predictions at the end of this? Because you mentioned that the time that you're looking at is slightly warmer than it looks like today. So can you use that information to then predict what kind of organisms that we're going to see as we continue to warm? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> I think uh, I think for my work now and the inclusion of ancient DNA in the world of paleoceanography is quite new. So my goals are definitely to help it get in going to that direction because that would be great, right? Oh, I see. Very cool. So in the future, for sure. For me, probably not, um, but I think that's not the, so bad. There's actually, in coming years, I don't know if you, there's the, been this really cool expedition that happened the past year called Mosaic, where um, a vessel was actually frozen into the ice in the Arctic, and they were in collect, they did tons of stuff. They just, they collected so many samples, and they're really targeting, especially on the biology they're really going to hopefully share a lot of information about what's living in the ice, a lot of the genetic components, which could actually be super useful paired with my work so that we could say, okay, what do we see now currently? What do we see from the past? You can kind of do more of these comparisons. So I think it's not on the future for the next coming months, but maybe in the coming years, we can kind of start putting some of these past data sets, the modern data sets, and then you can build a bit more on these predictions. 
Very cool. Very cool. So you can use kind of this compilation of what's happening in the scientific community of people who are looking at this field in general can all come together and build the models from that. That's amazing. That's a really lovely picture of science. Yeah, that's what I hope at least. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit about you now instead. And I'd love to hear how how did you first get interested in research? Oh, I uh, I think every time I try to answer this question, I come up with a different story. To be honest, <laughs> I love it. But the, I wasn't originally interested in research at all when I went into my undergraduate degree. Um, I was in biological sciences. I always really liked biology, but the, I was kind of going more the route that many people go of like, oh, I want to be in veterinary science or I want to do a medicine. And then I think I just got kind of, I kind of fell into it in a way, or I kept opening opportunities to research. They just kind of kept coming to me and I kept going, oh, that sounds cool. So I think the first one was I was helping, uh, this is why I mentioned Diticidae beetles earlier, because I <laughs> I volunteered with a, a PhD student at the time uh, who I met through an intro ecology course who was like yeah do you want to count and look at pin some beetles for me and I was like yeah sure <laughs> sounds cool I got some beetles yeah <laughs> I got some beetles and then from there I met someone else a master's student and I ended up doing some of the very basic super basic molecular work for her I was I was checking out if these little stickleback fish which are super common biology fish because they're found all over the world in different environments and they evolve in different areas. And to find out if they're male or female, you have to do a very simple genetic test. So that was kind of my first, like, here's a little tiny aspect of a project. Can you design it? Can you execute the lab work and can present the results? And then I think I really enjoyed my time in that lab and I kind of just snowballed where I was kind of kept finding these opportunities and it was like, God, oh, do you want to work in my lab? It's like, yeah, I do. It's awesome. I had a, I have kind of a similar experience where initially I think you get into science programs and all you really know about science is medicine and, and veterinary science. But as time goes on, depending on the program you're in, people are exposing you to different things and you're trying different things and, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's more. <laughs> That's a fun rabbit hole. It is. It's it's pretty cool to to think about those those kinds of things that you've done and you're like, wow, this is a very strange tangent of of research that I went on, but all of course important and all very cool for kind of setting up where you are now. That question kind of leads to how did you get into climate science? How did you end up in climate science? So this one was definitely more of a jump for me. So when I finished, I did my master's uh, in more of the molecular biology um, kind of basic science stream. And I think it's always funny to say, I mean, it's more complex than this, but I did my master's in epigenetics of early horse pregnancy, which seems very far away from climate science. <laughs> but realistically, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my PhD, I knew I wanted to stay in research. And I knew that the things I really enjoyed about science was I really love DNA. To be honest, it sounds uh, overly simple, but I think DNA, with all of the tools and molecular assays we have access to now and will continue to develop, and, and it's just, there's something new like every other month, it seems like. The amount of questions that you can try to answer and kind of pivot towards, I think is... Uh, 
maybe a bit like limitless. So when I was thinking about PhD, I knew I wanted those components. And then I also was trying to find something a bit more in line with my own kind of things that I'm interested in the world, which of course is climate change. It's a growing, growing problem. I'm very stressed about it. And I think one thing you can do is if you have talents and maybe you can contribute to some of the solutions or ongoing work in that area, it seemed like kind of a nice fit to say, okay, I know I don't have the specific background, but I'm really good at this DNA molecular toolkit stuff. Can I use these skill sets in a climate change environment? And the answer is yes. There's a lot of interdisciplinary work and it's been quite a smooth transition. I think when you kind of see the header of what I've done in the past and what I'm doing now, but there's this whole underpinning of the molecular biology aspect that yeah, just help me kind of realign my academic talents with things that I'm really interested in and trying to contribute greater good knowledge towards. So it's kind of that that using using some of those important techniques that you've learned in the past to apply it to climate science. I'm curious, because this is something that I've learned about recently, is this idea of, of climate anxiety and stress about climate change that I'm also feeling pretty acutely right now, but you must be thinking about all the time because this is the world that you're in. How do you manage that? I think it's a really hard balance, to be honest. And I talk about it with a lot with my other like PhD peers and stuff here. I mean, and I think it's, I think it'll be different for every person, but I think if it's something that you're worried about, you should definitely make personal changes in order to kind of help navigate it. But the more time I spend on it also, the more I realize it's great to do individual actions, but I think it's so important to keep the focus on there are major climate emission contributors that are specifically I don't want to get too political, but like there are specific companies that are really responsible for these things. What I try to focus on when I really kind of spin out of control, like, oh, I can't buy this uh, because it has plastic or I I can't go home to see my family because of the airplane emissions. Of course, all of these things should factor in in some way. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm one person. I'm trying to do my best. And I think if we all collectively try to do our best, then That's all we can do as individuals. That's how I manage it, is I try to keep it all in perspective of, okay, me stressing about it isn't going to solve the problem either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. But I mean, the research you're doing and the research that many people are doing is also, also, I think, really impactful. So worth remembering that you're you're doing really great great work towards it too i read actually a really nice quote from someone i wish i had the name but it was when the most recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report came out yeah just a couple weeks ago there was someone who was being interviewed a journalist asked this person or a scientist so do you still have hope and they responded something along the lines of i don't need hope i have answers but like if we do this we can expect this or this it's not so much about having hope anymore it's about certainty And I actually really like that idea of like, you know, we've been going at this approach of, I hope it gets better. And it's like, well, we know we can make changes. I mean, COVID has, I think, shown that if you really push hard, you can make changes. So I, I, of course, I'm still optimistic. I still believe in people and all that. And and I like this framing of, you know, we, we still have a chance to make certain changes and yeah, to better equip ourselves with what's to come. We can't stop everything, but maybe we can prepare for, okay, we know these areas in the next 50 years, the sea level will rise and take out this village. Okay, let's make steps now to move the village or like protect these people rather than coming to 50 years and being like, oh, dang, looks like the village is underwater. Like, 
wonder if we should have seen that coming. You know, it's equipping for what's to come rather than thinking if we ignore it, it will go away. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know there was a, a big call for trying to help deal with what's going to happen with climate change rather than exclusively trying to stop it, if that makes sense. So rather than trying to exclusively minimize emissions, which of course is important, also trying to deal with what's going to happen, which is really what your research is all about, which is quite cool to kind of bring it back around to that. Yeah, exactly. How has research during the pandemic been for you? It's been interesting. I mean, I've definitely been super privileged here in Norway. It's been um, very safe place to be during the pandemic. And I definitely keep that into consideration. And I've been pretty fortunate in the sense of I have been able to still do quite a bit of field work, which has been really great. I spend time on this icebreaker up in the Arctic, landing in Svalbard, which is an Arctic island, super high up. Actually, it gets cut off in a lot of maps, which I think is kind of interesting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people haven't heard of it, but it's an incredible place. It's this super extreme island and it's so wild. And yeah, we go out on this ship and yeah, this summer I went up to 82 degrees, which was something I never thought I would do. And you just look out and you see polar bears wow. and just sea ice across this huge expanse. And then I've been there in the summer where it's so bright because the sun re reflects off the ice. And then I've been there in the winter when it's so dark, you feel like you're in another planet. I mean, you're just a, on a ship surrounded by blackness. Yeah, because the, the sun won't come up at that point, right? It'll be 24-hour darkness yeah. during the winter up there. Yeah, so you get the, get the extreme. So there's certainly been things that I've lost. I mean, I, I miss kind of this going to these more community gatherings or conferences where you can kind of have this back and forth with people also in your field and you get new ideas. I think that's been really hard, but I've still been able to go on these like super great experiences on the field work and get a lot of samples to use. So there's been trade-offs, but I think overall it's been, been okay. Do you have a favorite story of what an icebreaker expedition was or, or a favorite story from those trips on the ship? Yeah, oh, it's hard to pick one, but I can kind of collapse two maybe. Um, so I have a, a fear of bears, but the idea of seeing a polar bear from one of these ships, it's the best time to see a polar bear because they don't know what you are because they've probably never seen humans and they're very curious animals. Also, you're on a giant ship and there are polar bear guards with guns and stuff on the ship just in case anything happens. So in the winter, uh, in November of last year, we were out and we saw a polar bear come out of the ice in the distance and he was running around and it was just an incredible experience to be like, oh my God, there's a polar bear and just seeing this huge animal on the outskirts of where our lights hit and then just seeing it like disappear in the darkness again was such a cool experience. Wow. And then when I went in the summer this time, we saw a family of <gasps> polar bears. So a mom and two cubs and they were just so curious. They came after breakfast. You, I, you know, they could smell the breakfast smells from the ship. We were stopped for some period of time doing our work and they just came all the way up to the ship and they were super curious. I mean, I could have sat there and watched them for hours. It was just such a, you know, one of those moments where you're like, this is so special. I mean, this may never happen to me again. I feel so like, wow. And then also a polar bear, it's such a symbol of the Arctic as well. This like majestic, huge animal and seeing it in person and just 
I think those are the times where it really hits me that I'm like, wow, this is where I am right now. This is incredible. Uh, I think those are my the favorite the experiences of seeing the polar bears. That is so, so cool. All right. So we'll do, we'll do these questions that are called rapid fire questions. And so I'm going to ask you just a couple questions. If you can try to answer it in one sentence, but of course I won't cut you off, especially if it's something that you want to talk about and it's cool to talk about. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite thing about living in Norway? So Norway is really great for being a super outdoorsy cultural place. So the minute there's sun, we go hiking, we go climbing, we go running. And I, I do really enjoy that. Amazing. Question two, what has been the biggest surprise in your work so far? I guess for me, I it's always been a bit of a, a risk trying to go this old with the ancient DNA. And I've been having quite an like success at it. So to get like 130,000 years, I think we could go deeper. I think we could go more. It's not been easy. I don't want to undersell it, but I've been surprised at how like by controlling all the aspects we could, we could actually guarantee for ourselves a good signal. So that has been a bit surprising and like super encouraging because I really just hope that this method can be used in many different places and different cores all over the Arctic. So yeah, I think that actually. That's very cool. That's that's really cool to hear. And finally, what are you most proud of in your work so far? It can be in your PhD work. It can be previous. It can be maybe just in your life. So I think it's a bit cheesy, but the finishing my master's thesis was, I think I felt very proud of myself. And I was really happy with the work that I contributed. And it was such a nice feeling to kind of put your heart and soul into something and then stand there and defend it. I thought that was such a, mm-hmm. a really nice sense of like accomplishment and like, yeah, a prideful moment. And I guess so far in my PhD, something that I've been really proud of is maybe less tangible of like a thesis defense, but I definitely took on a challenge coming to Norway. It's been a bit unfortunate timing wise because I've done most of my PhD during the pandemic. And it's been quite the transition from what I've been doing in the past to now being in a super interdisciplinary project. And I'm kind of proud of myself for keeping up, I guess, and like making the transition and being okay with it. And yeah, I think I've been a bit proud of myself for kind of deciding, yes, I'm going to make the jump, kind of switch fields, and it's going to be great. And then it kind of has been. So that's been kind of nice. That's great. Absolutely. Something that you you definitely should be proud of. Thanks. (laughs) We'll finish on the question. uh, What do you want the audience to take home about your work and take home about our conversation today? I think... Some of the like the most important thing with all climate research is that we know things are changing. <laughs> the kind of the past, you know, headlines of is it real or is it not real? I think they're they're really distracting from what we do know. And like we were talking about certainty, you know, we we know things are changing. And most importantly, I want to stress that we talk about these things in really abstract ways of like, oh, it'll be warmer and the currents will change. And what does this mean? And it, it will have really tangible impacts on humans and on people. And I think that's what sometimes gets lost a lot when these 
conversations. So what I would want to stress now is that we know things are going to change. We know that this means things like more intense water cycles. So think bigger monsoons, more hurricanes. We know that wildfires are becoming more and more prevalent. You know, I'm from Canada where our whole Western coast lights on fire, which is super devastating in many areas. And then many of these changes are already irreversible. And specifically the oceans, the area that I'm interested in, the Arctic, and the disappearing sea ice and changes in global sea level. And when you take all these terms out of context, that's lost homes, that's lost food sources, depleted uh, you know, fish stocks, that's yeah, washed out homes, floods, and, and ultimately human lives, human homes, and, and climate refugees. And I think it, it's not necessarily, I'm not trying to impart that people should be stressed. I think that there's a lot of climate anxiety, but that, you know, we have knowledge of what will come. We're working to constrain what will come. How can we better predict what will happen? Because ultimately, I hope that it translates to people saying, okay, how can we prepare for the future? How can we ask our politicians to make policies that reflect what we know is going to change? And how can we safeguard future generations? Because I think there's been a lot of like, oh, it'll happen in the future or whatever. And, and you know, time is Time is ticking away. And at some point, I want to be a part, and I hope other people want to be a part of a world that sees what's coming and faces it with a bit of bravery and a bit of intelligence. And hopefully we can make the impacts for humans and specifically the people who will be really impacted as little as possible. I think that's what I would like to impact is that the reason we should care is not that the world cares if it gets hotter. It's that the humans will pay the price. A great message to leave on. Thanks, Danielle. And thanks so much for, for joining us today. It was a ton of fun and really important research. So thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's all on the unscientific method for now. Thanks to all you wonderful listeners out there for tuning in. If you want to reach us on social media, follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com if you want to tell us how we're doing or request a topic that you'd love to hear about. We'd really love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out. Bye for now. <laughs>